Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and this is a podcast recording of the Old Testament. Although this is not an official recording of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, every effort's been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. I'll be using for the text the Joseph Smith translation of the Old Testament, along with many commentaries from general authorities of the Church, BYU professors, Bible scholars, and others. This format will be very detailed, and so if you want a deep analysis of the Old Testament, you come to the right place. Thanks for your attendance. Hi, and welcome back to the Exodus podcast. This will be for chapter 3. Verse 1, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to, to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb, which is Sinai. The southern end of the peninsula of Sinai, to which the sacred narrative now takes us, consists of a confused mass of peaks, the highest above 9,000 feet, some of dark green porphyry, but mostly red granite of of different hues, which is broken by strips of sand or gravel, intersected by wadis or glens, which are the beds of winter torrents and dotted here and there with green spots, chiefly due to perennial fountains. The great central group among these these mountains is that of Horeb, and one special height in it, Sinai, the Mount of God. Strangely enough, it is just here amidst this awful desolateness that the most fertile places in the wilderness are also found. Even in our days, a part of this plateau is quite green. Hither the Bedouin drive their flocks when summer has parched all the lower districts. Fruit trees grow in rich luxuriance in its uh, in its valleys, and the neighborhood is the best watered in the whole peninsula, running streams being found in no less than four of the adjacent valleys. It was thither that Moses probably in the early summer drove Ruel's flock for pasturage and water. Behind him, to the east, lay the desert before him rose in in awful grandeur the mountain of God. The stillness of this place is unbroken, its desolateness only relieved by the variety of coloring in the dark green or the red mountain peaks, some of which shine in clearly defined and the faintest in the sunlight like burnished copper. The atmosphere is such that the most distant outlines stand out clearly defined and the faintest sound falls distinctly on the ear. All at once truly a strange sight presented itself. On a solitary crag or in some sequestered valley, one of those spiked gnarled thorny acacia trees, which form so conspicuous a feature in the wadis of the desert, of which indeed they are the only timber tree of any size, stood enwrapped in fire, and yet the bush was not consumed. That was again by Edersheim. Verse 2, And again the presence of the Lord appeared unto him as in a flame of fire, on the midst, in the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. God's power burns but does not consume. When we are, when we are, when we are the furnace of adversity, we need to have faith that God, that although the experience burns, it will not consume us, as if we, if we have faith in Christ. It's interesting that uh, as uh, the the fire or the flame here. Um, burns the bush, but it's not consumed. When Joseph Smith uh, said that he had the first vision, that he said he saw the light descending, and he thought that the light was going to consume the trees, but it didn't. It just gave more light. Verse 3, And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not consumed. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh thither, draw nigh nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. 
At view of this, Moses turned aside to see this great sight, and yet greater wonder than, than this awaited him. A vision which for centuries had been seen now appeared, a voice which had been silent these many ages again spoke, the angel of Jehovah, who is immediately afterwards himself called Jehovah and God, spake to him out of the midst of the bush. His first words warned Moses to put his shoes off from his feet as standing on holy ground. The next revealed him as the same angel of the covenant who appeared unto the fathers as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The reason of the first injunction was not merely reverence, but it was prompted by the character of him who spoke. For in the east, shoes are worn chiefly as protection from defilement and dust, and hence put off when entering a sanctuary in order, as it were, not to bring within the pure place defilement from without. But the place where Jehovah manifests himself, whatever it be, is holy ground, and he who have, he who would have communication with him must put aside the defilement that clings to him. In announcing himself as the God of the fathers, Jehovah now declared the continuity of his former purpose of mercy. His remembrance of Israel and his speedy fulfillment of the promises given of old during these centuries of silence, he had still been the same, ever mindful of his covenant, and now, just as it might seem, that his purpose had wholly failed, the same time had come when he would publicly manifest himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The same truth was symbolically expressed by the vision of the burning bush. Israel, in its present low and despised state, was like, like the thorn bush in the wilderness, burning in the fiery furnace of Egypt, but not given over unto death, because Jehovah the angel of the covenant was in the midst of the bush, a God who chastened but did not consume. And this vision was intended not only for Moses, but for all times. It symbolizes the relationship between God and Israel at all times, and similarly that between him and his church. For the, for the circumstances in which the church is placed, and the purpose of God towards it, continue always the same. But this God in the midst of the flames of the bush is also a consuming fire, alike in, cause, in case of forgetfulness of the covenant on the part of his people and as a fire that burneth up his enemies round about. This manifestation of God under the symbol of fire, which on comparison will, will be seen to recur through all scriptures, shall find its fulfilled accomplishment when the Lord Jesus shall come to judge his eyes as a flame of fire, and on his head many crowns. Verse 6, Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in, the, in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring thee or to bring them up out of the out of that land unto a good land and a large unto a land flowing with milk and honey unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites now therefore behold the, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppress them the nation of Israel is now strong enough to be on their own so they must come out of Egypt Verse 10, Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? Did he really accept his call? No. How, how are we to accept calls? To serve. Do we have the faith to serve? We're called under inspiration. When God calls us, he gives us 
power to accomplish all things, it is our duty to explain to the one issuing the call of our limitations or other things that might prevent us from successfully fulfilling the calling. Then it is up to the one instituting or issuing the call under the inspiration of the Lord to determine if the call is to be issued or not. This discussion process is necessary as part of the studying it out in the mind's process. Verse 12, And he said, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token, or the sign unto thee, that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I came, when I come unto the children of Israel, and, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. Was the name Jehovah before? Uh, was the name Jehovah known before Moses? Exodus six three makes it sound like it wasn't. The Joseph Smith translation changes it to read, and was not my name known unto them. What should he say in reply to this inquiry of of Israel about God? What is his name? This means. What was he to tell them in answer to their doubts and fears about God's purposes towards them? For in Scripture, the name is regarded as the manifestation of, of character or of deepest purpose. Whence also a new name was generally given after some decisive event, which forever after stamped its character upon a person or place. In answer to this question, the Lord explained to Moses and bade him tell Israel the import of the name Jehovah, by which he had at the first manifested himself when entering into the covenant with Abraham. It was, I am that I am, words betokening his unchangeable nature and faithfulness. The I am had sent Moses, and as if to remove all doubt, he was to add, the God of your fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This, the Lord declares, is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. In other words, as such he would always prove himself, and as such he willeth to be known, and remembered not only by Israel, but to all generations." Verse 15, And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial, or thus shall I be remembered unto all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together, and say unto them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared unto me, saying, I have surely visited you, and, and seen that which is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt unto the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites unto a land flowing with milk and honey. And they shall hearken to thy voice and thou shalt come, thou and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt. And ye shall say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath met with us. And now let us go, we beseech thee, three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And I am sure, in the Hebrew I know, that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, or except by power, not by a mighty hand. And I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst thereof, and after that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall, be, and it shall come to pass that when ye go, ye shall, go, ye shall not go empty." But every woman shall borrow, the Hebrew ask, of her neighbor, and of her that sojourneth in her house jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment, 
and ye shall put them upon your sons and upon your daughters, and ye shall spoil, or despoil, or make empty the Egyptians. Israel will go out of Egypt, not as slaves, but as a conquering army. The second difficulty about the supposed direction to Israel to borrow jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment, and so to spoil the Egyptians, rests upon a simple misunderstanding of the text. Common sense even would indicate that under the circumstances in which the children of Israel at the last left the land, no Egyptian could have contemplated a temporary loan of jewels soon to be repaid. But in truth, the word rendered in our authorized version by borrowing does not mean a loan, and it is and is not used in that sense in a singular in a single passage in which it occurs throughout the Old Testament. It always and only means to ask or to request. This request or demand, as considering the justice of the case, we should call it, was readily granted by the Egyptians. The terror of Israel had fallen on them, and instead of leaving Egypt as fugitives, they marched out like a triumphant host, carrying with them the spoil of their divinely conquered enemies. And again, that was by Edersheim. I bear testimony that these things are true and that this uh, text that we're reading, the Old Testament, is uh, true scripture. And I bear that testimony in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. See you next time. Bye.